From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationship with it. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. Well, today, three guests on the show. First, authors Lucy Cook and then uh, Laura Martin, as well as professor and conservationist Joel Berger. First on the show will be Lucy Cook, a New York Times bestselling author, National Geographic explorer, and award-winning documentary filmmaker. Cook will discuss her new book, Bitch, on the female of the species. This book introduces its readers to a cast of incredible female animals and the scientists that study them. Then Laura Martin, an environmental historian, comes on to talk about her latest book, Wild by Design, The Rise of Ecological Restoration. Martin explores how naturalness can be cultivated rather than found, providing us with seeds of hope in an age of changing nature. And finally, Joel Berger, a longtime senior scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society and research associate for the Smithsonian Institution, will discuss how wildlife is changing their competitive behavior in the face of a changing climate and the associated ecosystems. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And uh, now in the first part of the show, we're going to speak with Lucy Cook, a New York Times bestselling author. Um, and we're going to talk about her latest book, Bitch, on the female of the species. Lucy, thanks so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we know that uh, since Charles Darwin, evolutionary biologists have been convinced that the males of the animal kingdom are the interesting ones, dominating and promiscuous, while females are dull, passive, and devoted. And in this new book, you tell a new story. Why is it that historically we've always been so focused on the male of the species? Well, that's a very good question, isn't it? I think probably because, <laughs> well, first and foremost... <laughs> First and foremost, I think it's because the people asking the questions were men for a long time. You know, science is all about asking questions and one tends to ask questions about what you're interested in. And so if science is dominated with men, then they're going to ask questions from their perspective and, and look at the world through the prism of being male. How has this skewed our vision of kind of how, how biology works? Yeah, Lucy, how, <laughs> how did we do? Um, well, I think... <laughs> <laughs> Must try harder. I think is the <laughs> okay. Okay, is the uh, is is the, is the uh, is the mark. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's been a revolution in the last forty years since there's been a sort of you know more more women in positions of power and and you know actually having the same education as men and and asking questions. And we've seen you know trailblazing scientists like Sarah Blaffer Hurdy, um, Patricia Goati, Mary Jane West Eberhard mm. um, coming through in the 1980s and starting to ask questions about you know. They're, they're, they're actually they're in the field and they're seeing behaviors that don't fit the Darwinian paradigm of the chaste, coy female. And instead of ignoring the licentious promiscuity of the female languor, for example, they're going, mm, that's interesting. Why is she having sex with all the males in the neighborhood? <laughs> <laughs> Makes for a more interesting and maybe more accurate story. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you if you only look look at one side of the story if you only look at male behavior you can't understand you can't understand why animals are behaving the way they are and and you're and by ignoring females you're 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 not only misunderstanding 
animal behavior, you're also not understanding the forces that shape evolution because you're ignoring, you know, Darwin knew that sexual selection was different from natural selection. He knew that the quest for mates shaped evolution, but he thought that that was just male competition and and female choice that, that drove that. But of course, females are just as competitive as males, you know, and that drives evolution too, you know. So those forces need to be considered and those behaviours need to be considered. Um, so, I mean, I sort of think to myself that really Darwin, he was a genius. And what's fascinating is that someone who was as brilliant and meticulous as Darwin, even he was, he wasn't immune to cultural bias, which is which is a red flag for all of us. Um, but he was, you know, he was viewing the world through a Victorian pinhole camera. You know, mm. he, he was seeing what society allowed him to see. And of course, now with much more diversity in science, we're really beginning to see the animal kingdom um, in all its technicolor glory. I don't want to go too far down the Darwin rabbit hole, but did you see any, is there any research that suggests that there were other scientists during his time, research that were kind of pushing back on Darwin? In, to yeah, this? there is. Yeah. That, that's a fantastic question. And um, Antoinette, Antoinette Blackwell was a feminist at the time. Of course, women couldn't go to university back then, but mm. she was self-taught. And she wrote to Darwin and, and, and questioned him. Um, and and was I, I seem to require, I don't want to be quoted on this because I'm, I'm pulling this from memory, but I think he gave a fairly short shrift, actually. No, okay. Not surprised. Uh, <laughs> so then, how did, how, on a historical timeline, when do things begin to change? When, when do uh, scientists, particularly men scientists, uh, start to change their minds on issues? Well, you know, you start to see... Um you know, I don't want to say that it's just female scientists who have rewritten the book because right. there are plenty of male scientists yeah. in my book who would consider themselves feminists, you know, and, and have done an incredible job um, documenting the female of the species. Um, William Eberhard is one. He was the one who came up with the idea of cryptic female choice. He recognised that, you know, Darwin thought that that you know that there was there was a competition over females between males, and that happened pre-mating, and that was what drove you know armaments like like the antlers of the stag or ornaments like the peacock's tail mm. but um william eberhard he recognized that 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 competition goes on after mating you know and and that you know females mate with multiple males um and he recognized that and he and he knew that that then that that perhaps females had a way of of, of choosing which male even fertilized them in, in, a, in a cryptic way um and we found that in dung flies that's actually the case that, that the females they they can they can sp store sperm and preferentially choose sperm from certain suitors so what? you know that <laughs> Um, there have been, you know, there've been. They've, they, I would say that really, it's it, it's it sort of started in the kind of 1980s. Really, oh, was wow. the start okay. of the revolution. Yeah, and um, and and we're still very much in it. You know, there's there's still much work to be done. Uh, okay, let's start talking about uh, examples of, of species. You mentioned, did I hear it right? Dung flies. Yeah, dung flies, okay. yeah. Dung okay. flies, uh, the man who studies dung flies has said that if they had giant manes and were about a million times bigger, then they would be a source of great fasc fascination to the yes. world. But sadly, they're not. They're, they're flies that live <laughs> on dung. So but their behavior is very interesting. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about other e examples of, say, going back to Darwin, where, where he kind of 
I say got it wrong, but was was misinformed um, in his analysis. Well, sexual behavior would be first and foremost, really, is that he viewed females as as um, as as passive. Was yeah. was was the, the the big dichotomy is that males are considered to be active and females are passive, and and males um, compete for the attention of females, um, and and males mate. Um, promiscuously, and females um, are wired for chastity. Um, now, that the, the fact that, that, that Darwin thought females were wired for chastity would come as a surprise to, you know, the, the female lioness, for example, who mm-hmm. mates um, over, a, you know, up to a, has been documented mating up to a hundred times with multiple males doing during her fertility period. Um, so, so she didn't get the memo on on chastity, um, <laughs> just like <laughs> just like pe- plenty of, of animals, and and she. She, well, um, it was actually Sarah Blafferhurdy who who um, who realised why uh, mammals like the like the lion, the female, are mating multiply. They're not just being wanton for the sake of it. Mm. They're actually doing. They're actually mating with multiple males in order to be a good mother. Because um, in the case of lions, male lions are infanticidal. When they take over a territory, they may well kill the cubs that aren't theirs that are in the area. And, the re- and she worked out, well, the reason why they do this is because females who are nursing are unreceptive to mating. Um, so by killing the cubs, it's a double win for the male because not only the female comes into estrus, but also it means that he doesn't have to waste energy raising somebody else's cubs. So um, so by killing them, that solves that problem. But if the female mates with all the males in the area then the males are less likely to kill the babies because um if they've mated with a female then there's a chance that those cubs might belong to them so the females are basically just as strategic as as males and i think that's that's probably one of the 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 earliest challenges Um, and it's not just lions we see it in songbirds patricia goati in the 1980s was the first to put um to to do a dna test on on a clutch of eggs and find that they had multiple fathers and and in the case of, of of, um, of, of songbirds, the reason is is really you know it's, it's obvious to, to Patricia why put all your eggs on one basket? You know if you if you have multiple fathers, you have more chance of, of of hitting the genetic lottery. So so that's probably the first one that, that would have would have would have shocked um, Mr. Darwin, I think. You you talked about you know the the females of a species being just as competitive of the males of the species and and additionally how it's not just you know the males that are aggressive. Um, give us some examples of uh, the females of a species having some of that you know that competition or aggression. Oh, these are these are great stories to tell. But one that's really surprising for most people is the lovable meerkat. <laughs> um, you know, every, everybody's you know seen the meerkat on telly, meerkat manor, or you know programs detailing their lovely lives. They all live in these family groups. Well, meerkat society is predicated is is tense and homicidal and pr- predicated on <laughs> ruthless competition between females who will and basically you have a, a, a dominant female who's in charge and she wants to. Provide prevent any of the other females from breeding so she can dominate those resources um, and and on all the other members of the clan will be forced to help her raise her kids so she spends less energy on raising kids and more on just squeezing them out basically um, and it's an incredibly effective strategy um, what she'll do is uh, if any of the females um, gives birth she will um, kill their babies and evict them from the clan and that's a ta- that's basically a death sentence for a meerkat in the Kalahari 
um, but they're allowed back in if they wet nurse their murderers' babies instead. Um, and so, you know, that's pretty hardcore. And that's the reason why meerkats, in a recent survey of a 1,000 mammals, including humans, came out as the number one most murderous mammal on the planet. Well, every meerkat has a one in five chance of being murdered by another meerkat, most likely its own mother or sister. So, you know, wow. I mean, that's just as competitive <laughs> as any warring elephant seal, perhaps more. And and female animals will compete over resources with 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 um, members of their family or, 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 or non-members. Um, and they will do so. Um, they you know, they, they they'll compete over resources. And, um, and 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 just in, in the, and and what they can do is they'll they can suppress in some cases the reproduction of the other females. So the naked mole rat, for example, lives in these colonies underground, and the dominant female actually prevents any other members of her clan from reproducing, male or female. So she dominates all of the resources by being a big royal bully. She basically is like a queen, a social insect queen. Um, and uh, and 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 so the entire clan are just servicing her royal reproductiveness. So you know it doesn't really get much more competitive than that, I don't think. Uh, well, let me let me introduce you. We're speaking with Lucy Cook. Uh, she's a New York Times best-selling author, National Geographic Explorer, award-winning documentarian, and author of the book "Bitch on the Female of the Species." So, Lucy. Uh, Okay, uh, let's go to the opposite side of the spectrum. Are there females of the species who are actually collaborative in nature and not so murderous and conniving? <laughs> give us, give me one. Um, well, that wasn't. I mean, that wasn't that wasn't what I was writing about because I wasn't looking right. at. Um, you know, I was looking at sort of stereotypes that we have that about female animals that have persisted through time and then looking to kind of show how science has moved on. I mean, there are, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's plenty of, I mean, those societies that I've just described of the mole rat and the naked and, and the, and the meerkat are described as cooperative societies, but it right. depends on your definition of I, cooperation really, doesn't I, it? Yes. <laughs> One that doesn't Forced. involve murder. Uh, although <laughs> yeah. I guess you can include our species in that in that mm -hmm. category as well, so maybe that's just natural but part it is of evolution. Two sides of the same right. coin. <laughs> it oh. is true that cooperation plays a lot more uh, a, a greater role in in as, a, as an evolutionary force than we perhaps we've considered and the idea of the the um survival of the fittest which is actually a misnomer darwin never actually said that it was ah. herbert spencer um and it's it has made us focus very much on competition as being you know the the, the only force of, uh, around around evolution and, and and of course cooperation does play a large role but sometimes that cooperation in the case of the meerkats uh is a little coercive perhaps right okay <laughs> So, Lucy, I'm curious as to what made you come to, to this topic for a book. How did you uh, land on this? Well, I was, uh, you know, I studied zoology at Oxford um, rather a long time ago now, but, I'm about, <laughs> but um, about three decades ago. And I was, I was taught by um, Richard Dawkins who I'm sure you've heard of I was taught evolutionary biology by him and I was mm -hmm. and I was taught these stereotypes I was taught that the you know the the Darwinian version of, of 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 sexual selection and it always sort of bothered me particularly this idea that that um 
you know, uh, males are wired for promiscuity and females are wired for chastity, because it just made my head hurt. I thought, well, if all the males are being promiscuous and all the females are being chased, then who, who are all the males having sex with? I don't really understand it, you know. <laughs> so it always sort of slightly bothered me. And, you know, as a, you know, as, a, as an egg-making student of evolution, I, I found it rather dispiriting <laughs> to know that we were the sort of feminine footnote to the macho main event. And so uh, I, uh, I suppose I've always had a curiosity about it. And then over the years... I just sort of noticed things that didn't fit the paradigm and then sort of investigated and eventually, you know, realized that there was there was there was a huge story to tell about how we have, uh, you know, how, how, how our understanding of female animals has been shaped by cultural bias. So where uh, where does the research lie right now? Where, where where is the work being done to further this story? I think I think you know it's still I mean like you, you say know, it's only been around since the 1980s or so plus or minus so we're only a few decades into kind of changing minds here right Precisely you know and I think that well sort of firstly I think you know we still have a way to catch up in terms of studying females female animals being as studied as males mm-hmm. or as documented um you know it it, it, they, they are underrepresented um, and also for these ideas to filter through because culturally they're very stubborn you know people are very wedded to these stereotypes for whatever reason I can't speak I can't speak to that as a zoologist but I, I, I it's very very um, it's very obvious that, that people are very wedded to these stereotypes for whatever reason of male dominance and, and female submission um, and um, and, you know, I think most importantly is, and what's most exciting is, is all the sort of, you know, diverse voices that are now coming into science. Because, you know, science was, you know, zoology and evolutionary biology was, was dictated by white Western men, um, not all with beards, but, you know, quite a lot, <laughs> um, you know. And, um, you know, where, where it's not just female voices that are missing. It's, it's voices from other cultures that speak other languages, other genders, other sexualities, you know, that, that look at the world through a different prism. And, you know, a fantastic example of, you know, I, I went looking for sexist bias and I was surprised to find heteronormative bias. Um, as part of my research. So a great example of this is the um, the albatross in uh, the Laysan albatross colony in Oahu in Hawaii. Um, and they've been studied for over 50 years. And um, and there was this, 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 this issue that some of the birds, uh, some of the nests had two eggs. And, you know, it's impossible for a female albatross to lay two eggs because they're too energetically expensive. And so there are all these sort of weird excuses over the years for why they might be two eggs. And then eventually, um, Dr. Lindsay Young, a few years ago said well if we checked that both albatross on that nest are uh, you know that they're a heterosexual couple that it's a male and a female they're identical looking so you know everybody just assumed that each couple was was a male and female um and she went around and did fe- uh, feather tests on each of the nests and found to her absolute surprise that a third of the couples of the colony are female female couples hmm Wow. So, which is astonishing, right? She said it, she actually did the lab work twice because she <laughs> couldn't believe her eyes. It was so astonishing. And then she thought, oh, no one's going to believe me. And she did it a third time. Um, so, um, so actually, what, what's, what, what's going on in that case is this particular colony is a new colony. It's under 100 years old. And it turns out that it's the females who are the pioneers in every way in, in amongst the Laysan albatross because 
they are much more likely to strike out to pastures new and establish a new colony than the males are, for example. So you end up with more females than males. Um, and so they have, you know, they have eggs to be fertilized, but they need a partner in order to raise the chicks. It takes six months to raise an albatross chick. It's, you know, you've got to have a tag team of two parents in order to sort of go on foraging mission, missions and, and raise it. So the females are using... You know, other albatross husbands for want of a better word in order to as sperm donors and then mm. and then shacking up with another female to raise the chicks and the, it, both females lay an egg um and because you can only brood one uh, one of those um only only one survives and that's that's random it would seem um but i love this story you know because it shows the plasticity of sex and how mm sex roles are incredibly flexible you know and so this idea that 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 one's sex is a, is a crystal ball that defines our behavior is nonsense and what's really charming about these these bonds these couple these female couples some of them don't you know last one season or two but some of them turn out to be incredibly enduring and we all know that the albatross is a symbol of monogamy and the, some of these female pairs have been together since the Lindsay's study began 17 years ago and and one, one couple I met <laughs> had been together 17 years. They'd had eight chicks and three grand chicks and were amongst the most successful albatross couples wow. on the colony. And they did all the same lovey-dovey stuff. So they preen each other and coo and all that sort of albatross kissing and nuzzling that, right. that produces bird oxytocin and keeps their bond strong. Um, so they're behaving in all the same ways as the heterosexual couples. Um, it's just that... Um, that they are their same-sex female couples. So, so hearing this about you know like the gender stereotypes and the assumptions that come with it, and the you know heteronormative assumptions, Lucy, what are what are we going to look back at the our assumptions today and question like you know fifty years from now? Well, I mean, gosh, I, I mean, I'd love to know the answer to that, but <laughs> I, I suspect I suspect that this this sort of wave of people with um you know of of, of of you know who are able to not view the world through heteronormative goggles and who are asking questions from a from a diverse perspective um are going to it's, de it's definitely going to be a, a new revolution that's going to make us look at the natural world in a different way by by exploring the 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 plasticity of sex and sexuality in in nature and understanding that better i think that that will prove to be revelatory well we only have another minute and of course i'm going to ask a question that probably takes five <laughs> minutes to answer but too bad here you go uh, going back to the albatross uh, uh, uh condition is there any evidence within albatross or any species where females give bias to raising females versus or more tension or care towards the female chick let's say versus a male chick um, yes, yes, there are. Yes, okay. there absolutely are. And, it, and that's very common amongst birds, actually. Um, and you get it. Um, Jean Altman, who's a, one of the, the sort of legendary scientists that I wrote about, she actually, she was one of the first documented in baboons, actually. So so baboons, um, females, you know, you, you, you always think about the alpha male as being in charge, but actually females in almost all primates have their own hierarchy system. And with the um, baboons, the, the, the females... The, at the top of the hierarchy, they tend to give birth to females because they inherit their mother's status. 
So they, they give birth to way more females than they do males. Whereas the lower class baboons, the females whose 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 daughters are shackled to their low class and all the all the lack of privileges that go with that, they give birth to sons who have more chance of duking it out and taking alpha status or or shacking up with a a, a high society female. So. And so, so it's it's really not uncommon. It's a very good question, actually. It's really not uncommon for for females to basically to, to rig the sex ratio themselves. How, how we don't, do, how they do, we don't really know. But it's probably selective abortion. Uh, but obviously, that's unconscious, right? They're right. not consciously making mm. decisions. It's a, it's a, it's it's triggered by various environmental cues. But it's fascinating, though. I mean, fascinating to think that it takes place. Uh, well. You, do, you just introduced the whole caste society. We, we have to have you back uh, another time. And I forgot to tell you that the well, females that collaborate are the bonobos and they overthrew the patriarchy <laughs> through ecstatic same-sex frottage. I can come well, back and tell you about that as well. Well, <laughs> the stories the word, never end. You say the word frottage and I'm in. All right. Um, Lucy Cook, among other things, author of the book, Bitch, on the female of the species, Thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. I'm Nell Larson. And joining us for the second part of the show is Laura Martin. She's an environmental historian, and she's here to talk about her new book, Wild by Design, The Rise of Ecological Restoration. Laura, thank you so much for joining me and Nell on This Green Earth. It's my pleasure, Chris. Well, let's start here. I always typically some start with some definition of terms. Uh, give us a definition of the word naturalness. Certainly. So naturalness, naturalness is a really tricky concept yes. okay. to <laughs> define that's actually good. And i'm sorry Laura, that's yeah. good because nell and i were are both in the environmental field and he's like we need to know what naturalness means <laughs> sorry for interrupting go ahead yeah i i argue in wild by design that naturalness is uh, is itself constructed that everything we think of as wild and and wild nature is in fact um mediated by and designed by humans that there's not a I argue against the idea that that wildness can be defined as as something that's separate from humans or mm -hmm. uh, a space that's outside of human society or human economy um, and I would say the same would go for the the definition of natural so often people think about something being natural as, as something being untouched by humans or set aside from human use. Uh, but the history of ecological restoration shows us that all, all species, all areas in the world are shaped by human activity and human desires and have been for millennia. Okay, so going back, you know, an example of naturalness or say uh, you know, the unkempt or untouched by humans while there's, there are probably many portions of Utah, let's say, uh, forest and deserts uh, that have never been set foot upon uh, by humans. Um, so that could be a, an example of a naturalness type of world. 
I, I wonder if there are such places, even in, you even think in, so? um, even I, I do, I do, I do think no, even in places like Utah, places that have, um, that are today and also historically have been less populated than some other places. Um, there's a long, you know, indigenous history in Utah and, um, you know, it's, I think it's helpful to think about different degrees of use, maybe and yes. degrees of, um, and different relationships with the land. And so it's the case that there's many areas set aside as wilderness areas in Utah today, um, areas where there's not permanent human habitation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't human habitation and human management of uh, species there in the past. Um, and I think that um, you know, in, in my book, Wild by Design, I think about efforts there's there's so many efforts across the world today to foster wildness and naturalness in ecosystems and among species um, and in particular landscapes and i think one thing that land managers and ecologists are are trying to foster when they're working to create natural spaces wild spaces is a sense of autonomy from human processes. Um, and so mm -hmm. in Wild by Design, I I define restoration as an attempt to co-design nature with non-human collaborators. Um, and this is a, a bit different of a, of a definition than is offered by the Society for Ecological Restoration uh, which defines restoration as assisting an ecosystem that's been degraded, damaged, or destroyed. Okay. Um, and the, the reason I went with a, a different definition here is um, really thinking about the collaborative process that happens between humans and other species in the process of restoration or designing a, a wild landscape or a natural landscape. So even some of the places in the United States that we think of as most wild today, you know, exist only because of legal protections that were put in place by humans. Mm. Um, and so we can really think about this as a, as a collaboration between, between humans and non-humans toward the goal of trying to set aside certain areas or certain species to be able to at least partially direct themselves or have some autonomy. And and now, uh, in the course of you answering that question, I will, uh, as I always do, completely contradict myself. Uh, <laughs> in a because I was thinking in more classical terms of literally setting foot upon stretches of land or, or so, where nowadays there's probably not a portion of the planet that hasn't been impacted directly or indirectly by humans, right. uh, you know, uh, i.e. climate change in a warming world uh, writ large. So everything, all natural systems, quote unquote, have, are being impacted by humans. Right. If we think about climate change or persistent uh, pollution, right, then right. The, the, those, those phenomena really challenge the um our kind of traditional ideas that there's 
but there are some areas that have been untouched by human activity. So I, I have to ask the question as an ecologist and a land manager myself, you know, what kind of recommendations do you give to people in that, in that practice in thinking about this? What questions should we be asking ourselves as we plan a project? So, so in Wild by Design, I consider the, the, the long history of ecological restoration. Often when, when people talk about the history of restoration, we, we, we tend to think of it as a really recent phenomenon. It's um, the Society for Ecological Restoration was only founded in the 1980s. Uh, land management focused on ecosystem restoration really took off in the 1990s. Um, and if, if people look further back, I think they, they tend to, to credit Aldo Leopold as kind of the, the sole inventor of ecological restoration. And so my first takeaway is that, that ecological restoration has a really deep history that goes um, far earlier than Aldo Leopold's work and that um, scientists and land managers and citizens have been thinking about how to help other species survive and thrive for decades. And there's lessons to be learned in that history. I, in the book, try and bring attention to the ways in which ecological restoration projects have not always centered human social justice as they've pursued justice for other species. Um, and a great, a great example of this is the early work of the American Bison Society, which was one of the first game restoration um, organizations in the world. And the American Bison Society was concerned about the decline of bison, um, which arguably without their work might have gone extinct in the United States and Canada. Um, but in trying to save bison, they argued that the federal government should divvy up land that was held by tribal governments and dedicate it to bison restoration. So stealing land from Native American groups and putting it toward ecological restoration. And so I use this example in the book to, to draw attention to one of the questions we should always be asking when pursuing ecological restoration is who gets to decide where restoration is happening and how restoration is happening. Right. And I think it's really important to be asking these questions too, as restoration takes off globally, as, as just a few, billions of dollars are spent um, every year now on invasive species management, on carbon offsetting, on other types of ecological restoration. And so we need to be asking how are decisions made towards these big kind of me mega projects and who benefits from them? I, not just kind of which species, but which which humans which as well. People. Right, and 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 I'm thinking about the Florida Everglades, having worked down there for years on rest, literally restoration projects for the Everglades. Um, trying to think how restoration looks like with respect to the Everglades, and how how social justice works its way into that process too. 
For sure, yeah. And the the Everglades is a really interesting example um, that I I write about in a, a chapter of the book. It, the Everglades is the um, the kind of one of the arguably the first kind of mega restoration project in the world. Mm -hmm. um, there's now many other kind of wetland restoration projects on a, a similar scale worldwide, but Everglades uh, beginning in the 1990s was kind of the first big project and a really interesting one in trying to balance the economic needs of the state of Florida with the, the need to restore some of the hydrological regime and species habitat in the Everglades. And um, this is the Everglades restoration projects were the kind of birthplace of offsite mitigation uh, or the idea that uh, kind of environmental harm in what at one site could be compensated for with environmental restoration or repair at a second site. Mm. Right. And, and it's not necessarily about, I'll throw in a new term, rewilding the or returning the everglades to its natural state because if because if we wanted to do that we just remove the dikes surrounding lake okeechobee and allow lake okeechobee to flow in a natural way down through the everglades that's not going to happen because you still need sugarcane farms and and vegetable yes. farms and and there's towns yes, and there. Miami yeah and Miami <laughs> yeah, not to mention yeah. exactly Dade County and said so it's like it's like you say it's like how do we, it's 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 naturalness or restoration as humans define it yeah and I think this is what's so promising about restoration is that there is a a wide you know restoration can encompass projects that really try and return an ecosystem to a particular historical state that can seek that seek historical fidelity and to bring back all of if possible you know as many of the plant species that existed in say um 1400 um as exist um and bring them back to today but there's also restoration projects that embrace the idea of novel ecosystems and try and restore you know, ecosystem services like flood protection or nutrient cycling um, and don't pay as much attention to the particular species that are being used. Um, and so I, I, I came to this, I, I came to the, the first the, the science of ecological restoration and then the, the history of it through just being really intrigued by how capacious of a of a concept restoration is mm -hmm. and i think that flexibility really is going to be the way forward i mean i think i think it's what makes some people especially you know kind of strict wilderness advocates kind of wary of of restoration is the, is the question of well does anything does anything go can anything count as restoration right. um what is the difference between um, just kind of gardening right. and, and and restoration. Um, well, but I think these are really interesting, really important political and philosophical questions well, that, you know, are, are already at play. Well, unfortunately, we, we've got to wrap up. We'll have to save that part of the conversation for another time. Uh, Laura Martin, environmental historian and author of the book, Wild by Design, 
the rise of ecological restoration. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Oh, and where's a quick uh, website for people to learn more about you and your book? Uh, you can learn more about my research at ljanemartin.com. ljanemartin.com. All right. Laura, thank you again for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, quick break for Unrares when we come back. We'll talk with Joel Berger, senior scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society, about his interesting research. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And uh, joining us now for the final segment of the show is Joel Berger. He is a longtime senior scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society and a research associate for the Smithsonian Institution. And today we're going to talk about uh, wildlife behavior and competition in the face of a changing climate. Joel, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hi. Hey, it's a great pleasure. Um, I'm a professor at Colorado State University. I used to be a research associate at Smithsonian. <laughs> Sorry on that one. Well, we'll have to apologize to you for that, I think, rather than vice versa. I are our producer once again. <laughs> um, thanks for the correction. And I think, you know, from there, we'll jump into your research about and, and this conversation about how wildlife is changing their behavior in with this changing climate and the changing conditions they're dealing with. Um, tell us about sort of the first wildlife that that pulled you into this um, field of study. Well, so I was really interested in trying to understand how climate is changing things in the Arctic. But it turned out, in addition to where I was working in the Arctic, I was also working uh, with a fellow named Mark Beale and a fellow named Forrest Hayes. They're both uh, biologists, and we were in the northern Rockies. And where the ice started to recede uh -oh, from Glacier National Park, that is done. Um, we noted um, both bighorn sheep and mountain goats clustering around recently exposed mineral licks. And they would get into it with each other. And I, I, I guess previously they kind of worked with each other or avoided each other? Yeah, generally avoided each other um, because they just had different references. And so bighorn would go to certain areas and mountain goats would use more uh, pretty vertical cliffs. But in this particular instance, and then several others, both in Colorado and up into um, Alberta in Canada, we noted that mineral licks, um, which are deposits of uh, like sodium and potassium, were pretty patchily distributed in pretty small areas, maybe about the size of a swimming pool. And these animals needed these mineral licks and they would go to them. But when they encountered uh, respective um, members of a different species, they weren't very happy. And in um, almost all cases, the mountain goats uh, displaced or chased away um, the bighorns or the bighorns would just leave because they didn't want to tangle with the mountain goats. And the mountain goats aren't um, native. They were an introduced species in some of these areas, right? Yes. Um, their native distribution runs uh, northern Rockies, and so places like Montana, Idaho, and the state of Washington. But as one gets further south into Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, they've been uh, introduced 
And so um, kind of an unusual and additional challenge uh, to the native bighorn sheep, which occurred, as I just said, natively in all these other states as well. Does this bring up questions, new questions for managers, maybe the same in agencies that introduced mountain goats years ago about how, how to manage now that these species appear to be competing for resources? Well, in a couple of places, uh, Grand Teton National Park being one, Olympic National Park being another, um, the federal officials are removing mountain goats from those areas, uh, actually shooting them in the Tetons. And certainly concerns have been raised in some of these other places, but the uh, general approach has been laissez-faire, meaning that uh, whichever agencies are in charge, and in this particular case, National Park Service, uh, like in Yellowstone, they're kind of sitting and waiting and trying to understand what, um, if any, the impacts will be. Uh, are we seeing any other species uh, being more and more competitive, whether animals, birds, etc.? Um, yeah, certainly um, in places where these non-biological resources, so things like snow patches, right. mineral lakes, even water in deserts, uh, where you have some exotic species, it, uh, there's clearly a bigger challenge for the native species. I mean, I think uh, what comes to mind, whether it would be in Utah or other parts of the Western U.S., would be feral horses, which tend to dominate species like elk or bighorn or mule deer um, when they try to access uh, these limited um, waters. And we see now, um, with respect to, say, feral horses and their impacts, of course, there is an emotional connection uh, that at times can, I don't know, I'll, my words, get in the way of, of proper management. Um, how, how does that uh, play out with respect to making decisions on, oh, I'll say, you know, like winners and losers in this condition, in this situation? Um, <laughs> good questions. We can document winters and losers scientifically right. through observations and other inferences. Um, as we all know, conservation means people and yeah. people means opinions and philosophies. And so <laughs> it, it falls into the realm of what are the goals you know mm. is what kind of biological diversity do we want what do we want the future to look like right. i mean that's what it's coming down to right and then we make those decisions and those are difficult decisions whether we i mean certainly if we don't have the science then it's easy because one can just argue whatever they want but with the science it becomes a little bit more complicated is it is it possible going back to the the mountain goats and 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 the bighorn sheep? Is it possible to introduce more resources? You know, there's dwindling natural resources. So do humans come in and engineer the problem <laughs> away by saying, oh, we'll just uh, bring in more uh, you know artificial sites for food or so, or so? 
or water. I mean, that's certainly done yeah. in many places. I mean, just think about um, if you go uh, if you go down the street from where you guys are um, taking my call from, you probably have some domestic sheep or some domestic mm-hmm. goats, but people or cattle or horses. What do they do? They put out salt licks. Yeah. So people out in these more rural settings and um, do allow salt licks to be put out. Not necessarily the case in national parks because there are also uh, some uh, secondary issues, but you know, management by different agencies have different goals. Um, so anyway, the direct answer to your question, yes, there are options available. Fish and game agencies de- develop what are called guzzlers, which are areas of artificial water sources. And so it can help birds. Sometimes it helps reptiles. It certainly helps mammals. Um, and so there are ways I there are ways in which agencies have tried to diminish the direct anthropogenic effects that we've been doing, like, oh, depleting water tables. Um, and so when we do that, is there a balance that we try to achieve? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Here in in Summit County and in Utah, we have those guzzlers at work um, that our agencies fill up to provide water. Um, they think definitely about the game species, but it's an interesting it is an interesting balance. Uh, I'm curious about the impacts that your research has had. Um, you know, you mentioned that there have been some management decisions about this. We only have a couple minutes left, but um, do you see this being sort of an emerging field? Uh, certainly. We don't have much in or, uh, information on how different species may become um, threatening to one another through combat or through aggression or through uh, passive displacements. We certainly know that if we think about where climate is uh, impacting species, um, where warming is progressing at the most rapid rates, the highest of mountains, the highest latitudes, the lowest latitudes. We see a scramble for resources by countries. And so, you know, I've talked about animal models, in this case, bighorn sheep, mountain goats, but we certainly see, you know, Russia building more military bases where the ice is receding. We see the other seven Arctic nations clamoring um, and suggesting there are resources here and we need access. So, you know, there are animal models for what we as humans are doing as well, but the field hasn't been scratched very deeply because um, we're just not boots on the ground very much these days. Okay, well, with that, unfortunately, we have to wrap up. I think we could go another hour with this conversation, Um, but I do want to give our listeners uh, a place where they can follow up for more information on your work and your research. Um, well, thanks so much. And um, are you looking for like a website? Yeah, a website or a social okay. media, whatever uh, works for you. Uh, just look up uh, Joel Berger. Uh, all one word, Joel Berger Conservation. That is all one word, dot com. Fantastic. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining us this morning and uh, sharing your latest research. Yeah, thanks. thanks so much, you guys. Have a good one. Thank you, too. You can email us your thoughts, your comments, and your ideas for future shows at thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. And the interviews for this show will be posted on the KPCW website later today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when our producer gets around to later today. 
You, you can also find the show anywhere you find your podcasts. Thanks again for joining us. And remember, this is KPCW 91.7 FM, Park City.